Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware, a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Arroway. So if you are the kind of reader who loves a cookbook that you can not only enjoy in the kitchen, but also keep on your bedstand to just soak up tons of history, culture, um, beautiful photographs, and in-depth insights of a place, and uh, especially also lots of tasty food lore. Um, This is that kind of book that I'm holding right now. And it's on a region that I doubt many people have ever really read too much about in a cookbook before. And uh, that's because it's about Yunnan province. This is a southwestern province of China, which um, roughly translates to south of the clouds. And uh, its author is in the studio with me. It's Georgia Friedman- I almost said Georgia Friedman Wan to your <laughs> hyphenated married name, but um, Georgia Friedman, who is a wonderful freelance journalist, editor, um, and she also blogs about Yunnan food at chinasouthofthecloud.com. So, Georgia, thanks for coming. Hi, thanks for having hey. me. Um, so, this is amazing. This is your first book, and it is, we were just talking about, it looks like an inch or so thicker than you thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of wonderfully big. We yeah. hadn't quite anticipated. We knew how much work there was and how mm-hmm. much content there was, but we hadn't quite realized what it was going to look like when it arrived, right. which was amazing. And you put in a lot of work and years into this book. Yeah. Um, how I mean, did that happen? Where, where did you start? Well, so I've been going to Yunnan since 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I sort of knew as soon as I went as a student, I was just there for a week, but I had this idea that someday I'm moving back to Yunnan and I'm just mm-hmm. going to live there. Um, and so I've been going back um, on and off since then. But then in 2011, um, my husband, Josh Wand, who's the photographer on the book, and I picked up and moved our lives and became freelance and figured out how to do it and took our cats on a long airplane and moved (laughs) to Yunnan. Um, And we lived there for two years, almost two years. Um, And then um, ever since we came back to the States, we've just been going back a lot. We go for weeks at a time. We go Mm -hmm. at least once or twice a year, sometimes four times a year. And um, it's just a really interesting, vast region. And I felt like I had to spend a lot of time... Mm there to really know it well before I could do this. Was it just the food or what else about Yunnan made you say like this is the place? I think it was just so different from 
the other parts of China and the other parts of Asia yeah. that I had been in. And it was just such a unique place. And for some reason, I hadn't heard about it until <laughs> someone, one of my professors um, in college was from Yunnan. And But I thought, why is this beautiful, amazing place something that people don't know about? And it's the most biodiverse part of Asia. Mm-hmm. It's um, probably the most culturally diverse as well, I think, probably parts of northern Thailand and um, northern Vietnam and Laos and the edge of Myanmar have a similar um, a similar community and a similar aesthetic and a similar diversity. But it's just a really unique part of the world. Right. And it's sort of a crossroads, or you, it, you describe it as also like a wild west of China because it, um, well, tell me a little bit more about that. Sure, yeah. Well, so... Um, I mean, I, maybe the first thing to say is that Yunnan is in the sort of southwestern point of China that mm-hmm. goes down and it borders on the bottom Vietnam and Laos. And then along the edge, it borders Myanmar. And then its northern edge is the southern edge of the t- Tibetan Plateau. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not it's on the edge of a bunch of things and yeah. a, with a lot of international borders. It's really mountainous. There are massive rivers that go all through Yunnan and then head into the rest of Asia. Right, so there's fertile valleys all the way. And incredibly tall mountains that Mm -hmm. have been carved. So it's not an area that people were able to get to easily. Mm -hmm. And as a result, a lot of minority groups who were pushed out of the more fertile areas of China and other parts of Asia have ended up there. And because it's been so mountainous, it wasn't until a few decades ago that you could travel with any speed there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the different areas have become, were very, um, not closed off, but they culturally, um, what am I, <laughs> culturally, they, they kept their cultures alive very right. easily. Preserved, um, yeah. yeah, culturally preserved. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, because there are all those borders in the places where you can travel, there were a lot of trading routes. Uh-huh. So there's a whole trading route that we think of as like the Southern Silk Road or the Tea mm-hmm. Horse Road that took tea from Southern Yunnan up to Tibet, that took jade from Burma into China, that took spices from India all the way to China and all the way down to Vietnam. Mm. Um, Fascinating yeah. histories there. Yeah, so there's just a lot. There's a lot there to and be And it's studied. beautiful, too, as captured by the photographer of this book, Josh Wand. It is just lush everywhere you see, everywhere you turn in the mountains, like dusting the tips of mountains. Mm-hmm. Just, it's like a fairy tale. Um, you mentioned the minority groups, though, mm-hmm. and, and there's dozens of minority groups. Who are these people in Yunnan? Yeah, so um, they're the same. There's some of the same minority groups that you think of as like the hill tribes of Vietnam and um, Thailand. It's some of the same groups that people will know from those regions. But a lot of people historically migrated out of China and down into Southeast Asia through Yunnan, everyone coming through Yunnan. So there are communities still there. Mm-hmm. And um, if they were asked to self-identify, or they were asked to self-identify in the 50s, and there were hundreds and hundreds of different groups, right. and they've been politically grouped together to about two dozen, um, just to make administration right. possible <laughs> um, and representation. But it's 
there, I mean, there are a lot of Tibetans um, mm-hmm. up in the north, and there are groups like the Nashi who have had a lot of commerce with the Tibetans for a really long time. So their culture has been very influenced by Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go way down toward Laos, it's the Dai people who are mm-hmm. also the the Thai of Thailand and Laos. Um, it's considered like the birthplace of the Thai people down in southern Yunnan, and people okay. from Thailand come up. Wow. To- so, and uh, you write that a lot of people persecuted peoples from around China for one reason or another, or maybe retreating armies escaped into this mountainous region to sort of yeah. live. <laughs> yeah, well, if you think about like the Hmong, who mm-hmm. are classified as the Miao in China, um, they historically, and there is evidence of this, but also it's in the telling of their history, the oral history that they share, um, they came out of the fertile plains of parts of China and were pushed into the mountains mm-hmm. um, as the Hans spread out and sort of took over the country. And that's true of a lot of these groups. They've been pushed into the mountains. The mountains were very tall and in some places impassable. And so they were able to have their culture in mm-hmm. this area. So because of this disparate groups of peoples, um, you write that there's no such thing as Yunnan food. There really isn't, so, which is a funny, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I wrote a book about Yunnan food. And there's no, I, I'd say there's no Yunnan cuisine. There are Yunnan cuisines. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certain characteristics that you find throughout the region. Okay, what are some of those? Um, well, so because it's so mountainous and diverse, there are a lot of foraged foods. Ooh. And it was also a fairly poor area up until fairly recently. Um, so people just ate what was available. And so... Um, foraged foods are common, you know, every, all kinds of greens that get turned into little salads. Um, uh, flowers are eaten there a lot. And then chrysanthemum flowers. Yeah. Okay. And, mm-hmm. um, and even like, um, day lilies and things will get mm. stir fried, which is really lovely. Um, and the thing that is most commonly known is the mushrooms. Yunnan produces every, well, not every kind of expensive mushroom you can think of, but lots of matsutakes and lots of porcinis wow. um, come out of Yunnan and then get shipped to like the fanciest places in Tokyo. Oh, wow. So this is like part of their cuisine, though, worked into it. It's yes. A lot of mushrooms. A lot of mushrooms. Recipes. Yeah. If you're in Yunnan, you end up eating a lot of mushrooms you've never heard of because they're selling all the expensive ones. Mm-hmm. And eating the the chicken oil mushrooms or the greenhead mushrooms that you that are delicious but don't have an international market. It's something that like is so um, idiosyncratic to this region, but perhaps not um, on everyone's sort of hit list of like Chinese food um, staples. Um, so there's also in this uh, book there's a lot of ham. Like Yunnan is known for ham. Yes, too. Eastern Yunnan particularly is known for ham, but um, all through the regions that get cold enough to produce ham in winter. There's a lot of ham, um, and it's sort of like a hamoni berico prosciutto style ham, and a salted aged ham. Um, and the ones mm. out of Xuanwe, which is in eastern Yunnan, are very famous, and mm-hmm. you find them all over China. And you can have this ham so many different ways, but it's usually like, you know, not a big slab of ham, right? You use it to flavor things. Right. Well, yeah. you can use it to flavor things like throw it into some fried rice with some peas, um, but if you're in the area where they make the ham, they also will just slice it into thick slices mm. and throw in some green peppers and stir fry it into this massive plate of ham mm-hmm. and just really use generously in a way that you would never think to. You know, if you're in Spain or in Italy, you're getting these very thin shaved slices. That's not how they do it in Yunnan. They like give you big meaty pieces and really treat it like 
meat, you know? Wow. They're spoiled, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, yeah. They're the butchers. They're like, this is my Oh, meal. yeah. <laughs> we were super spoiled when we visited. Oh, my goodness. Um, so a lot of these foods are, uh, like I was saying, like, you know, not the typical American, Chinese American Chinese foods. Mm-hmm. Like there's rice noodles are used um, abundantly. You have potatoes, you have flatbreads, you've got tomatoes mm-hmm. um, and all these different influences. So let me talk, <coughs> actually let's talk about this grandma's potatoes dishes. And uh, sure, it's, it's, it's just so, okay. It's almost Thanksgiving too. So like, you know. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> grandma's potatoes would be an, excellent Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving dish because it is basically mashed potatoes, but without the dairy, which for a lot of people could be very helpful. Um, And without the mashing, really, uh, what you do is you boil potatoes, um, skin them, and then you sort of crumble them up with your hands. Okay, chunky. Uh, Yeah, yeah, little chunks. Mm -hmm. And then you heat up some oil or um, there's a lot of homemade rendered lard in Yunnan. I like to do oil with like a spoonful of bacon grease because that sort of gives that same flavor. And then you stir fry this cooked potato with, um, I mean, you could add bits of ham, certainly. Um, A lot of people add scallions or garlic chives, um, often a lot of dried chilies or a little dried chili oil. Um, I think I have a little of everything in this one. (laughs) Is it kind of like a loaded mashed potatoes? It really is. It really is. And it's... (laughs) Called grandma's potatoes because it's soft enough that even a grandma who has lost her teeth could eat it. <laughs> but it's like, so it's very popular with kids and it's okay. very popular with old people. People with teeth. <laughs> but then it turns out it's very popular with everybody because it's just this incredible comfort food. And so it's the kind of thing that you could go to any restaurant in central Yunnan where it's mm-hmm. really popular or eastern Yunnan. And, or, and probably anywhere, they'd know how to make it if you ordered it. They'd happily make it for you because it's just this lovely comfort food staple. And around the world, too. Yes, perhaps. it would be wonderful. Yeah. Oh, man. So another um, sort of dish that actually you write about in the introduction, mm-hmm. this noodle dish from a scholar. What was the legend with the Crossing this guy? the bridge rice noodles. Crossing yeah. the bridge rice noodles. Um, so, yeah, there's the picture there. Okay. The, um, yes. This cross- is the first dish that you were like, yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, crossing the bridge rice noodles. I had read about it in a textbook that mm-hmm. my professor from Yunnan had written. Um, and the legend is that in the city of Mangza, there was a scholar studying for imperial exams. And outside what used to be the town of Mangza, it's now in the middle of the city of Mangza, but it used to be that it was maybe half a mile outside of town. There's this lake with a... Um, an island in the middle and a little house there and bridges going over. And so he would study on this lake to sort of Mm, clear his mind and be away. And every day his wife would bring his food and she, by the time she got all the way out of town and across this bridge, the food would be cold. And then one day, you know, for whatever reason, she ended up rushing out of the house or maybe it wasn't intentional. There's obviously no way to really know. (laughs) But the story is she was rushing and grabbed a pot of broth and grabbed a bunch of raw ingredients and rushed over. And the fat in the broth rose up and kept the heat in. Okay, it created like a hardened shell. Yeah, or even, you know, fat will keep heat in even if it's just a lot of fat, you know. and she got there, and the it was still hot enough that she could add all the ingredients in and cook it in the hot soup. And that's how this dish was born. Um, and it's 
genius because it does work. Everything really cooks in the broth, mm-hmm. but also you can add so many things and the broth just gets better and better. Mm-hmm. Um, and the soup can be, you know, whatever ingredients you have on hand and you like a little bit of meat, a little bit of greens, um, some herbs. So here you have vegetables, thinly sliced vegetables, scallions, herbs, mm-hmm. and ham mm-hmm. and eggs. Yes, little quail eggs are often an ingredient yeah. in crossing the bridge rice noodles. And recently, um, people have started adding chrysanthemum petals in oh, as well, which is that beautiful. Sounds so good. Oh my God, I want that for a cold day. Um, we have so many more recipes and food lore to talk about, but we're going to cut to a quick little commercial break and we'll be right back. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food. And my favorite cookware is the 9-inch cast iron Le Creuset fry skillet that never leaves my stovetop. My Le Creuset recipe? Slab of bacon and some vegetables in the skillet. There is no better skillet than Le Creuset for my kind of skillet cooking. It spoils me. The heat retention is amazing. Heat a tortilla on super low heat. I even take my Le Creuset skillet with me when I travel. Bacon, quesadillas, burgers, chicken cutlets. Chefs always talk about sourcing the best quality ingredients, knowing your suppliers, using the right cookware and tools is just as important. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook, with the code HRN. All right, we're back chatting more with Georgia Friedman. She is the author of Cooking South of the Clouds, Recipes and Stories from Yunnan, China's Yunnan Province. And uh, we're just chatting about Yunnan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're just uh, learning. I, You know, this is not a region that I guess we see too many restaurants of in the States. So no. Uh, yeah. There were very few people from Yunnan coming to the U.S. for a long time. In the last, I want to say in the last two years, I've started mm. to meet people who, young people especially, who have come. And I think that's because the economy has changed mm-hmm. and there are people with big enough businesses or who have made enough money in Yunnan who are sending their kids abroad for school or for work. Um, and so, it, but that's brand new. And so... Mm-hmm. I feel like in the last five years, a handful of Yunnan noodle dishes have sprung up in okay. New York and L.A. and San Francisco, um, Seattle. And they've become sort of trendy and popular where they do pop up. But it's brand new and it's only noodle soups. I keep wanting to say, you know, <laughs> the soups are yeah. delicious, but there's more to the food of Yunnan than, yeah. than just the noodle soups. But it's wonderful that people are starting to get a chance to taste Yunnan food. Isn't that funny that this cuisine that is so delicious was some relatively little known before. And now you have this wonderfully comprehensive cookbook about it. Georgia, did you feel like this um <laughs> did you feel like this terrible sense of responsibility <laughs> in, <laughs> while you were writing it? Um well, so I just there there is a point at which you say, you know, I only have 120 recipes. This uh-huh. is this is a place that is, you know, a little smaller than Spain. It's kind of big, it's you kind know, of big, yeah. compared to a lot of countries in the world. Um and a lot of the food in Yunnan couldn't necessarily be made in the U.S. because we just don't have the ingredients yet. Mm. Um, so you mean I can't forage for a little right. really things? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so it was a matter of finding 
representative recipes. Okay. And not all the most famous recipes are in here. There are a handful of recipes that are kind of hard to make that people who have lived in Yunnan might want to do a couple times because they really miss this particular dish. And mm -hmm. so they're willing to take the time to spend a few hours to make this really unique, you know, pea curd. Um, but mostly... Pea curd? Pea curd. Um, <laughs> what? Sorry. <laughs> I just threw that well, out there. I'm like, huh? So I, and it's true. I, I think of it, it's like bean curd. Okay. Um, but it's made out of various kinds of peas or lentils. Mm. Um, so I've been calling it pea curd, but usually it's called like... Um, like a pea jelly or something. Okay. I just feel like that doesn't really describe how you eat it <laughs> and the kinds of things you do with it. You know, we don't think of jelly that way. Um, but it's like a... I do. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but it's like, you know, how mung bean um, noodles are sort of like jelly, clear yeah. and jelly-ish. Mm -hmm. It's like that, oh, okay. um, but you can make it with a bunch of different things. And so it ends oh. up with a bunch of different flavors. And you eat it cold and you slice it up. And it has a very smooth texture. I have you put, that, actually. Yeah. In Taiwan, they have that. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. um, they do have very similar things in Taiwan. Cool. Um, yeah, so... You know, you can make that if you really want to try. It's in the book. <laughs> right. But that's not how people cook every day in their yes. homes. Mm -hmm. And I was mostly cooking with friends' parents. Or I'd go somewhere and I'd stay in a really small guest house so that I could ask around and see if anyone local would want to show me the local dishes. Mm -hmm. And I'd, you know, I paid all my teachers. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, my, my job was to be a reporter and to accurately yes. tell their stories and um, that's what I felt the most responsibility about was to be yes. accurate to how groups and people wanted to represent themselves um, and to get the history right and to um, really share their food. So each of these recipes comes from a particular cook. Mm -hmm. And sure, some of them you add the chilies in first and then you add the other ingredients. Or some of them you heat the oil and the chilies together. I'm fairly inconsistent in little things like that because I'm just, I wrote it down the way this cook does it. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. the recipe that's in the book. Well, that's, you know, that's um, that's faithful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I love how you have these um, profiles of these cooks sprinkled throughout the book. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really nice. And you get to the pictures of them and everything. And um, yeah. So, I mean, how did you meet these people, by the way? Were they food? I don't know. Were they in the food business somehow or were they actually home cooks for the most part? A uh, little bit of both. Mm -hmm. So um, like the page you have open now to Jubois, she was a friend of a friend and okay. I wanted to learn to make some local dishes. And she um, was not working because she had a baby and but she had been a cook in a number of places and she wanted she was happy to make an American friend and mm -hmm. I paid her what I thought was too little and she thought was too much and we'd just go hang out all <laughs> afternoon. We'd go to the market and um, cook and eat together and we do, did that once a week for a while and we were still good friends with her. We see her when we're there. And then one of the other cooks uh, profiled is the mother of a friend uh, who I met because she was the PhD student of another friend of mine mm -hmm. and that... Um, her mother has a little restaurant down in southern Yunnan near Laos. Mm -hmm. And so she hooked me up with her mom and I went down there and we cooked together and hung out. Um, so it was very, her cooking is home cooking, but it's, she has a little restaurant where she does it for the community. Oh, that's fun. And then other times, you know, we'd be driving around and we'd find, I like to find little restaurants. Yes. And then you can say, hey, I'm 
American and I want to teach American cooks what Yunnan food is like. Can I just watch while you're making these dishes I ordered? Uh-huh. And people in Yunnan are thrilled. They love their food. They think they have the best food in the world and they're thrilled that other people are interested in it. And so most of the time, people are happy to just let me take notes and I'll say, oh, what's that? And they'll maybe write down the name of an ingredient that I don't recognize. Oh, and that's so fun. Yeah. So it was just a lot of wandering around and meeting people. Yeah. What was the most surprising thing that you learned um, oh. or saw? Um, well, there's a dish that really surprised me when I first had it, and it still surprises me that it works the way it does. It's um, it's like a pea porridge, the same way you'd make the, the pea curd, um, but it has sort of a porridgey consistency. And then you have it with rice noodles or arsa, which are a type of rice noodle made out of like a kneaded rice cake that has a springy texture. And you put the rice noodles in the bowl and then you put this sort of thick porridgey Like a pea soup? Pea, but it's actually, it, it looks like it's going to have the texture of like a cream of wheat. Like it looks really thick. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and then you put a bunch of herbs and spices and oils and stuff on top. And I, when I first looked at it, I thought, this this seems like it's not going to work. Like, I just don't understand. But as soon as I tried it, I realized that what happens is the pea porridge becomes like a creamy sauce. It mm. has a, the texture of like an Alfredo sauce. Whoa. If I was going to compare it to something Western. And the flavors are just amazing. But it was that kind of thing where it was like, this is a food that I just don't recognize at all how this is going to work you know usually I look at something and I can imagine what that flavor will be and I had no idea about this one and it's phenomenally good wow that's really exciting thick noodle soup or thick soup noodles yeah um and also so Yunnan is also distinct for eating dairy and so there's cheese throughout Mm -hmm. here you got a grilled like halloumi like recipe Mm -hmm. yeah yeah halloumi was the closest we could get to that particular type of cheese but yeah I mean when when people talk about how the Chinese don't eat dairy, what they mean is the Han don't eat dairy. But if you go to the outskirts of the country where all the non-Han Chinese people live, you do find a lot of dairy. So Tibetans obviously have always had a lot of dairy. Um, you know, I think butter tea. Then they have this lovely um, firm cheese that's sort of done in a pyramid shape that's up in the Tibetan areas of Yunnan that is sort of both sweet and sour. It's just mm. wonderful. Um, like feta? No, it's it has a hard. You sort of got to chip away <laughs> at it. They put it above the fire and let it smoke while they're ah. cooking, so it ages and gets kind of smoky. But then it, yeah, you taste it and it's both kind of sweet and sour so in this lovely way, but not salty, which is what keeps oh, it from okay. being like feta dense, okay. quite dense. I see. Um, and then in central Yunnan, there is yak cheese that is made sort of like mozzarella. Um, except then they stretch it out into these big pieces and wrap it around pieces of bamboo so that it mm-hmm. dries. And then they grill it and they put um, rose petal jam on it. Rose petal jam? What? What is going on here? <laughs> like- rose petal sweets are very popular all over Yunnan right now. You can get little rose petal cakes at the every little store. Um, it's a very popular thing and it's delicious. Wow. It's like Yunnan food is like everything that you don't think of when you think of Chinese food. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it is very Chinese. And, you know, some of the dishes are very recognizably Chinese. Right. Yeah. And I, I love this. Um, some are recognizably um, Southeast Asian-ish. Absolutely. Because there's, yeah, yeah, the borders. 
like this dye um, pineapple rice. Yeah, it's so ex- it's so exciting looking. I um, have I had always thought that pineapple rice was the kind of thing that you got in sort of a tiki bar. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, thought, I me thought too. it was this fakey thing that Thai restaurants had that we had invented, <laughs> like made like General Tso's or something. Maybe dull pineapple yeah. invented it on the can. Exactly, but nope. it turns out that, and I would assume that Northern um, Thailand and other places have this too, because okay. all the mm-hmm. you know these borders, some of them weren't set until the '60s. Actually, some of the borders between China and these other countries. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of food that crosses borders. Um, but yeah, the pineapple rice, it's made with sticky rice. And the version that you find in southern Yunnan is basically just sticky rice, pineapple, and maybe banana and some sugar. Mm. And you put it all back into the pineapple and steam it. And it's delicious. <laughs> if you I go out it. toward the edge of Myanmar, it gets sort of a... British holdover ingredient situation going on where you also add sweetened condensed milk, which is something that was in Burma with the British. And so it's there are a lot of things that you can sort of tell like, oh, this is sort of a Burmese dish. So it's like uh, pineapple rice pudding. Sticky pineapple rice pudding, maybe with purple sticky rice. And, oh my god, um, my brain just exploded. Yeah, it's lovely, <laughs> and it's just it's just flavored a little with the milk. It does you can't really tell it's in there, but it does give it a little bit of a creaminess and a little bit of a richness, and it's quite sweet. You know, wow. if if Chinese meals included dessert, these would be desserts, except that you eat it with the rest of the meal like you would with anything. Amazing. So I'm so glad that you shared all these wonderful stories about Yunnan. And I know that, you know, you know, you mentioned you learned about so many more dishes that did not make it into the book, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> but um, it's already a fascinating and comprehensive cookbook of the Thank region. You. So well done. Thank and you. what is the next place you're going to live for the next few years and <laughs> oh well that's a good question yeah. um, I mean we're in the East Bay now in California mm-hmm. and I'm from California so we're we're enjoying it there and the East Bay is a very interesting part of the world with people from all over living there it also puts us a little bit closer to China so we still go all the time <laughs> um but yeah, I think we're we're going back to Yunnan this spring, and then okay. we'll think about what happens next. Excellent! I can't wait to see more foods that you that you translate so lovingly back to us. Well, you can find out more of that if you follow um, George's blog, Cooking South of the Clouds, or sorry, China South of the Clouds is the yes. name of the blog, and then definitely check out this new book, Cooking South of the Clouds. So thank you so much again, Georgia. Thanks so much for having me. All right, thanks everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.